Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, once again recording from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by beautiful forests full of all these cute little animals and waterfalls in every direction. It's an honor to get to do this, to get to share my thoughts with you, and I appreciate your listening. I hope you enjoy these shows. Definitely exploring some topics that are dear to my heart, and I hope that the people who are also interested in these things get to hear this podcast. Uh, Really appreciate hearing from you listeners. Really appreciate finding out, you know, who's listening to this, because I never really know who it is where they are. I'd love to hear from you. And if there's anyone else out there you think might be interested in these topics, please let them know about it. So this is part two of an episode. So it's, I guess, a multi-episode episode. The topic being music and life toward a holistic perspective a note on the theoretical foundations of sound therapy. And this uh, series of episodes, I suppose is better to call it, um, is based on a paper that I just wrote. And it's honestly still in somewhat of a draft form, but it's on my website, physonics.com, and it's called Music and Life. And also there's another episode that came before this, where we went through uh, my reasons for writing this and wanting to clarify what I mean by it. And really uh, the first few sections of the topic. And to get us kicked off, first of all, I'm just going to read the abstract again because it's pretty short. And for people that didn't hear the part one, just to make sure that this episode can stand alone and doesn't necessarily require having heard part one. Um, The abstract is, this informal note addresses some fundamental relationships between that which we call music and that which we call life. Certain similarities are addressed, as are the inherent limitations in the definition of these terms. As music coherently bridges the objective and subjective domains of human experience, it is suggested that we investigate music as a primary resource toward a better understanding of life itself. We talked about a number of things on the last episode, and they are very interesting, and I hope you listen to it. But where we left off was we came to the section that is called return of the observer and in order to you know set the vibe and kind of get in the groove i'm actually just going to read you uh some of this and because it's also my speaking but as i have noticed through reading some of my writings uh in this format that i write somewhat differently than i speak so it comes out a little differently much to my surprise when i read my writing aloud. It doesn't sound like I'm just talking to you. But nevertheless, in order to get us started, I'm going to read you some of this. 
as we necessarily free ourselves from the tempting but foolish relegation of science to directly applicable engineering, which relegation undermines the very foundations of fundamental scientific developments, we are then left with the question of how to proceed. How do we proceed with science, which is based largely upon ignoring the observer, now that we acknowledge the observer as inextricably linked to all scientific endeavors? Although a century has passed, the revolutionary implications of quantum mechanics and relativity have not yet been fully integrated into our scientific frameworks. And this is because the above question has yet to be adequately answered. Collectively, we are not sure how to proceed, how to include the observer as fundamental to our conceptual frameworks. The very foundation of our modern scientific framework is based upon ignoring the observer, ignoring the subjective aspect of the observer. But if the observer is fundamental to all of our scientific endeavors, as quantum mechanics and relativity have shown, is science doomed? Perhaps science would indeed be doomed if we continued to restrict ourselves to the same fundamentally observer-independent framework. Let us, however, easily avoid such a demise. Let us acknowledge that the observer or observer dependence must be integrated into our frameworks as a fundamental feature. We might ask, haven't quantum mechanics and relativity already integrated the observer into our frameworks? For example, relativistic space, time, energy, and mass measurements are treated as dependent upon the relative velocity and acceleration of an observer. Also, quantum mechanical measurements of wave particle, wave or particle characteristics are known to be determined by the nature of the observing apparatus. But despite these apparent integrations of an observer into these physical theories, there is yet one thing strikingly absent. What is the observer? In our theories, we describe the observer's position, velocity, acceleration, location in space-time, and so forth. However, we in no way describe the observer as a subject. We describe only objective correlates of the observer. In no way do we describe the actual observer, the actual subject, the one who is experiencing the observation. One may also argue and seek support from neuroscience. Someone might say, we also describe the brain waves, electrical impulses, biochemical processes, every little detail of the observer. Is that not a description of the observer? However, a little consideration reveals that once again, these processes are external to the observer. These are objective features and do nothing to describe the subject, the one observing. Another might argue seeking support from psychology. They might say, we can describe human psychology in magnificent detail. 
We recognize patterns in the mind and make predictions about behaviors. We identify symbol systems, mental constructs, and psychological tendencies. Don't these features precisely compose the observer? However, a little consideration reveals once again that these are all only objective correlates. These are those things we see and hear and detect around an observer, but none of these describes the subject at the core of these objective correlates, that sensitive center. Another might argue, you're correct. None of these objective features describes the observer, and this is simply because there's no observer at all. There's nobody home. All we can find are observable features, but there's no observer in the center of these. However, even the most childish mind can quickly recognize the great flaw in this proposal. The very person making that argument is an observer. I, the one speaking these words, also am an observer. And likewise you, the one listening, you are an observer. This tempting argument denies the one and only fact that we can actually confirm that I am, that you are, that we are. So let us turn from these fruitless arguments in which we either pretend that we already adequately include an observer in our scientific frameworks or deny that any observer even exists at all. Rather, let us seek to penetrate a bit deeper. Let us look somewhat beyond our current frameworks and see if we find paths forward through this apparent mire. Let us see how we might more fundamentally include the observer in our frameworks. Perhaps by doing so, we may find ourselves on a path to better understanding life itself the one thing that each of us surely is. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it's an interesting experience switching from just speaking to you off the top of my head and reading, but not just reading, reading things I wrote. It's a really fascinating experience. But that is not the topic of this episode so what was that all about? That section was called The Return of the Observer. Basically, maybe I can explain this a, even a little better, uh, or especially having already heard that. Basically, as in, we've already discussed in some length, science has is this field of human endeavor that is comprised of the things that we can do that are the most predictable and the patterns in nature around us that we can find or patterns of activities and features of our universe that are reliable, things we can predict generally. And it just turned out through uh, just the fact of how things are that those things that are the most predictable are those very things that are what we call objective, uh, things that don't 
involve necessarily the internal experience of some sort of being any kind of self or the feelings that people have so science you know is based on those things that we can find in the universe around us that aren't really based on people's opinions or feelings or even perceptions that they're not science is based upon essentially ignoring that subjective aspect of human experience and focusing very intentionally and penetratingly upon that which we call objective because it just turns out that that's the most reliable uh, things we can predict are those things we call objective so about a hundred years ago the crowning achievements in some sense of science these two theories appeared practically simultaneously one called quantum mechanics and one called relativity and both of these theories in very different ways have integrate the observer as very fundamental the the results of our experiments necessarily depend on the observer in both quantum mechanics and relativity and in a very different way so what i'm bringing up here is an interesting point that is easy to overlook we look at quantum mechanics and relativity and say these definitely include the observer there you know the observer is uh, elemental in the calculations and what i am pointing out here is a subtle issue and it's also a very important issue that the observer is included in these theories in an external sort of way what we call ourselves you the listener the person listening right now whoever you are whatever your name is wherever you are you're having some sort of internal experience full of emotions feelings it's essentially composed of all of those features of the universe where your awareness is and there's also this kind of feeling of will like you can make a decision you can decide to listen to the rest of this podcast or to listen to all of them for the all night all in a row while you sleep or decide to turn it off hopefully you'll keep listening you have you know awareness and then also this sort of will you have this internal experience happening and that's the observer you're observing the words that i'm speaking right now observing them by means of your ears and quantum mechanics and relativity and science in general does not have a view of that internal thing that we call the observer that we call you that we call me that we call the self any way that science integrates thus far the observer into its models of the universe is external it's external features it's observable 
features, but the internal subjective aspect of the observer is still completely out of the grasp of science. And perhaps it necessarily is so. So does that mean we're just kind of stuck with that, that that's how it is, that these, uh, that, that there's just certain things science can't touch? Or does it mean that we need to expand science? Or does it mean that maybe something else, maybe there's a, a way to bridge science into uh, a relationship with that part of life that we call subjective. Perhaps science isn't going to expand to include the subjective, but perhaps it can be bridged. Who knows? But this is a really important thing to look at. Is there a way to bring that subjective aspect of the universe which is as you know right now listening and feeling and existing the subjective aspect of our life is actually central even when we go to sleep it's still there when we're dreaming no matter where we go no matter what level of reality or experience we go to that's the part that stays with us this subjective center this self, this awareness, this central thing that we are, whatever it is, is central to everything. It's far more fundamental, so it seems, than that which we call objective. So what I am suggesting here is that we investigate if there is a way to bring the observer into the fundamental basis of how we proceed with science, instead of the way that quantum mechanics and relativity include the observer as a sort of uh, set of features, is there a way to integrate our scientific endeavors with the actual subjective aspect of our experience in this universe. And I suspect that we can, and not only that we can make this bridge between the objective and subjective realms, and therefore between our scientific endeavors and our non-scientific endeavors, our subjective or aesthetic or spiritual or artistic, whatever you'd like to call them, I suspect that we can make that bridge. And But in order to make that bridge, in order to find that bridge, or in order to nurture that bridge, or in order to uh, bring that bridge into our, our reality, into our perceptions, into our conceptions, and into hopefully a way to proceed more effectively living as beings on this earth, in this universe, that we look to music because music has a very special feature. It has a number of special features, but 
One of them is that music definitely and clearly and observably and reliably bridges the objective and subjective domains. Uh, the objective domain being that field of our experience with which science deals so effectively, and the subjective domain essentially being that domain that science that essentially lives in the blind spot of science, essentially the negative space. If science is the positive space, then the subjective is essentially that space around it. And music lives, in a sense, on the surface between that which we call objective and that which we call subjective. And so it is a very reasonable idea that perhaps we can look toward music for guidance in these matters. So I, I somewhat jumped ahead there, uh, talking uh, at least in terms of the flow of the paper. But basically, uh, the next section is called A Look Toward Music, and essentially a suggestion that in this, basically we have this question or a, sort of a problem or a challenge. The challenge is, is there a way that we can include what we call the subjective in our view of the universe? The scientific framework has, in a sense, become the modern religion. Essentially, if something can't be described scientifically, the modern mind has come to essentially treat it as illusory, that if science can't address it, then it's not real. And most people have little secrets, things that have happened to them, or things they feel sometimes, or all sorts of experiences and some people have a whole extra lot of such experiences but most people have experiences that just don't fit that idea uh, for example here is actually what is really my favorite example for this is because ev everyone can relate to it it's so simple you can explain it to a little kid. Everybody gets this. It is not mystical at all. It is as straightforward as it gets. And it's this. What a strawberry tastes like cannot be described scientifically. what it is like to taste a strawberry. You can't put it into words. You can't put it into math. You can't put it into models. We could um, potentially map every single detail of the chemicals and electrical fields and neural patterns. 
whatever in in the greatest unfathomable detail we can describe all sorts of objective correlates things that happen whenever someone tastes a strawberry we can even invent molecules that taste like a strawberry potentially we could make a machine that can taste a strawberry <laughs> but none of those things tells what a strawberry tastes like i could talk about it i could write poetry i could write books about it i could make songs about it i could make paintings trying to describe it i could try to describe what a strawberry tastes like for the rest of my life and so could you and so could everyone else and none of that would ever express this simple fact of what a strawberry tastes like so how do we how do we uh, how does one find out then what a strawberry tastes like it's as simple as it gets they taste a strawberry take a bite just that simple and that is what is called initiation initiation is the passing on or the receiving of knowledge that cannot be told that can only be gained through direct experience and so science is a field of human inquiry and human endeavor that is amazingly powerful and it's in fact really beautiful and it's impressive and it's extraordinary and it's something to be proud of and it's a tool so powerful that you know we need to be way more careful with how we use it and it's just fantastic however everyone's going around pretending like they don't notice this one simple fact science is incapable so far as we know ever to handle something so simple as what a strawberry tastes like and if you start thinking about it you realize that it's not just the taste of a strawberry it's everything that we experience directly everything that we experience directly is in the blind spot of science science essentially is about that which we don't experience directly so this is as i hope i have expressed clearly a really important thing to see through the illusion that anything genuine and real can be expressed or uh, adequately covered in the realm of science but that's not true there are unlimited infinite real genuine and true aspects of the universe that are totally inaccessible to the scientific method and framework and those are the experiences of the observer the actual interior experience of, a, of an observer 
the subjective. And so it's really important for us to break through that illusion collectively because it is a huge and debilitating blinder that humanity is wearing and does not need to. So how do we get through this? So one thing that is really good to keep in mind that happens with, uh, it's, it's a common thing that occurs when people make breakthroughs. You know, you're, you're working on some sort of problem, whatever it is, you know, you're just trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out. You learn everything you can about it and you think it through and you talk it through, you write things down, whatever, you're working on this problem, working on this problem. And you've just really just worn yourself out just getting just deep into all of the details and whatever important features there are that are relevant to the problem you're working on. And then let's say, let's say you are uh, Archimedes and you're working on the problem of trying to figure out how to measure the volume of an irregularly shaped object. If you have a strange shaped, strangely shaped object, how do you measure its volume? Because you can't measure its sides and calculate it because the sides are so irregular. And then, you know, you're just trying so hard to figure it out and can't get it. So you realize, you know, maybe I should just kind of quit thinking about it. And go home and take a nice bath. And as you're relaxing into the bath, and as you climb into the warm water, you watch it rise and realize exactly the answer to your question. And then if you're Archimedes, you run through the streets yelling, Eureka, Eureka, Eureka! naked and then you know run to see the emperor and tell him the answer or whatnot uh you know only do that with care there's there's some places where you shouldn't run through the streets naked yelling eureka but there's definitely places these days where uh some people might not even notice but the point being that it is a good idea to look to other places to look away from the field where our problem is and let ourselves turn our attention to other fields. And, you know, sometimes that's exactly when we discover our answer. We discover it somewhere else, hinting. And it seems to me that music is an excellent place for us to turn our attention, particularly for those of us who are interested in sound therapy. Music is a really central and crucial aspect of that which we call sound therapy. So it's not just an excellent place to turn our attention as we expand science to potentially include the observer or expand our framework of uh, the universe to include that which is science and that which currently is not. 
music is exactly ringing a bell. Ding. On that note, it seems like a perfect opportunity to thank our generous sponsor, Phisonics Academy, where you can take direct one-on-one private remote courses with yours truly in the foundations of sound therapy. Some really, really fun classes where we go very deep into the foundations of those things which we call sound therapy. These are excellent classes, getting excellent reviews. I would love to share some time with you exploring the magic of sound. Learn more about those courses at phisonics.com slash academy. That's P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S dot com slash academy. So on the note of music exactly ringing a bell, I believe that this is an excellent time to stop this episode and we will continue on the next one. The uh, part one was pretty long and I realized that some people might not always have time to spend an hour and a half listening to one. So I'll just keep this one around 30 minutes and we will continue this exploration in part three of Music and Life Toward a Holistic Perspective, a note on the theoretical foundations of sound therapy. Once again, I am Thomas Orr Anderson, and it's a delight to be here with you on the art and science of sound healing. Until next time, be blessed and be well. Thank you.